0: Welcome to Black Imagination, where Antoine and I open up our black space to our black and brown friends doing dope things in Milwaukee's arts and culture scene. Black Imagination is a part of the Imagine MKE podcast network.
1: So go get out your sage sticks, light some incense, and join the conversation. Be sure to follow us at Imagine MKE on all your favorite social media platforms and subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And now, here's the show.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Imagination. My name is Antoine and I'm here with my colleague, my partner in Black crime. No, I don't want to say that. It's not Black crime. We just (laughs) we Black builders out here. So my my fellow Black builder, Kenita, how you doing?
0: Hey, Antoine, how are you?
1: Um, I'm doing okay. You know, it is we usually host these on Thursdays. So it feels like Friday to me. So I'm ready to like put my feet up, relax, and not talk to no people about some bull. <laughs> How about you?
0: <laughs> you know, I am actually kinda lit. I mean, I think um yeah. so Thursdays, Thursdays after four is usually our checkout time, right? Because we um we don't work Fridays. And so um, but this is special. So we're doing our second podcast of the day um so we get to end our pod our our week in a very very special way because we have a very special guest and i think it's fair to say she is closing out our um our trust black women series
1: trust black women
0: yes so this is this is the last one in that series for 2020 um and we have the incredible Dr. Monique Liston in the building.
1: Dr. Mo, also the <laughs> Milwaukee's goddess of water, of drinking water.
0: Yes, yes. And Dr. Mo, if you've listened to any of our podcasts, you will hear me, you will have heard on a few of them with Black women. I was <laughs> yes. like, hey, yes. look, your skin looks like you've been minding your business drinking all the water. And Antoine will say,
1: getting on your dr mo
0: getting on your dr mo so (laughs) you have made appearances on on our podcast um welcome to black imagination how are you
2: oh wow uh thank you i am honored uh, really in so many different ways just to even be a part of the conversation and to uh, continue to serve as a good hydration reminder. I'm just yes. uh, honored and humbled to be here, excited to talk to y'all. Um, it's always fun to me to put, you know, be able to have a conversation with people that you would talk to anyway. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. y'all get to be, yeah. y'all, the audience, y'all get to be privy to conversations I would sit to have with Kanita and Antoine anyway, so you're welcome. <laughs> okay, you're welcome True. to the audience. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is the
0: gift. This yes. is the gift. Yes. So where I I feel like there's so many different di- directions we could go. We talked to Marquesa earlier, and the one question that I didn't ask her that I said I wanted to ask when she came back was, "What does freedom look like for you? What does Black liberation look like for you?" And so let's start off with that. Mm-hmm
2: okay easy question (laughs) that's where we start with (laughs) Um, i I love i love this question because it invites a couple of things that are really important to me into the space so one you know in the conversation that is popular right now it's talking about equity and some people might talk a little bit about justice right and the word liberation is usually reserved to the more radical among us right we start talking about liberation and As someone who holds that word very close, like a Bible (laughs) to me, I Mm -hmm. acknowledge that in this current moment, I define myself by the institutions that oppress me, right? And so Mm -hmm. I have to also acknowledge that I, Monique Liston, have to get to a space where I understand myself beyond the identity of Black women that I hold myself so close to. But when I start thinking about liberation, it's when I see myself beyond that identity. And to me, when we start thinking about like, what does it look like? Well, I think anything that we imagine in this moment is still tethered to the oppressive system. So we don't have to, we don't, we don't acknowledge the fact that our imagination also needs to go through a liberation transformation. Yes. So I often refer to it as like, there's equity, justice, liberation, and a freedom as yet unknown. <laughs> it's something that we can't even put words to because our language, our thoughts, our whole being is still tethered to the system of oppression. And liberation is only the space that says those systems do not exist. We're trying to get to a step beyond that, where it's a freedom as yet unknown, one that we cannot define, because in that space, Antoine's not a black man. In that space, Kanita's not a black woman. In that space, we are not defined by the sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic, capitalist, militaristic systems that literally define who we are. And we, admittedly, can't really understand ourselves outside of that right? And that's unfortunate, but that's why we need to work towards liberation so we can get to a freedom as yet unknown, so I can know whatever amorphous spiritual being Antoine really is, and how how they would choose to live. You you notice I said they, because I don't even know how, if gender's not a thing, I don't even know how to define that,
1: right? My pronouns are gang gang, you know that.
2: Okay, (laughs) right? So what does gang gang look like? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is gang gang in the fullest manifestation of living to the deepest uh, potential of gang gang, what does that look like so i love the question because it forces us to acknowledge that our imagination is tethered to the systems of oppression that we're living in
1: so okay so so my mind i do not have the full capacity of imagination to fully form what my liberation is right how do i flex? how do i build that muscle up in because it's like a weak muscle (laughs) that's
2: it oh i love it that's the illustration it's a weak muscle so what do i do in the timeline that I'm in, mean, right? You know, just yeah. a Rick and Morty fan, right? In this timeline. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> in this timeline, how do I begin to build the muscle for me to start having a radical imagination, right? And I think first thing is being able to name the things that are really constructs of our reality, which might seem difficult, mm. but it's easy. Like, I think we're at a point in the general conversation, we can accept that race is a social construct. Oh yeah. (laughs) We can accept, Mm -hmm. I think, that gender is a social construct, but that might be hard for people to wrestle with because they're like, but I've understood myself through this lens for so long. How do I understand myself outside of it? So I think that kind of work is real, right? Like what would it mean to, you know, sometimes I blow my own mind by thinking about for some reason, I came to earth in the United States in this year. And then what would it mean for the what I feel inside my body at this moment to come to the earth in another part of the world at the same time? Like what would I have done with these same sort of intentions, right? Still a Leo, born on August 13th of 1986. Still, all of, gang, gang, gang. <laughs> Still yes. all of those things. But what would it look like if I grew up in Ghana? If I grew up in Thailand? Like just really trying to think through and I think Like, to your point, well, what muscle are we building? We're really trying to build our empathy and compassion muscle in real time,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: right? (laughs) How can we understand ourselves under drastically different circumstances, but still being ourselves? I think that opens up, like, we can really be empathetic and more compassionate to things that are Mm -hmm. outside of our circumstance. So can we name the constructs? Begin to think outside of them just a little bit right and then can we also say like i can build the muscle of being empathetic in real time at this moment what i would be doing differently had my circumstances lightly changed just a little bit <laughs> what would it look like what would it feel like and i think that practice requires to your point it requires you being in community with other people who are willing to engage those same things this is a muscle that you're referring to you can't flex your isolation can't sit in your room by yourself and flex that kind of muscle because you need someone to push and poke at you as you break down what has socially developed you. You need somebody else to be like, uh-uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> See how you just you need some, you can't do it in isolation. So I think all of that is what's required of us in this moment to really get to the practice of having and I that think radical that, that
0: to me as I'm listening to you talk about that, the thing that came in my mind was it's another system that we gotta abolish.
3: That's
0: another That's another thing we have to abolish, right? Because Mm -hmm. we can't, if the work is to be done, then we also are acknowledging that these these constructs, these social constructs, are detrimental to the work ahead, detrimental to our identity, right? And I think uh, Marquesa earlier, um, she stated, like, look, like, the systems aren't working. So we're not trying to reform the system, whatever the system is. We need to get rid of it. We need to abolish it. And so that—that that is what was playing mm-hmm. in my head as you were talking. And that is a mind blowing notion. Like what, how would I identify myself as Kenita if I didn't look at myself through the lens of being black or being a woman? And if other people didn't view me through that lens as well, right? Because that is the identity that I hold on to that I, I cling to when I'm in certain spaces, whether it's I'm advocating for myself as a black woman or other people as black people or advocating for other folks at the table through the lens of being black, um, or using it to find safety, like we're building here with black imagination, this opportunity to talk to, to, to black folks and brown folks um, in the space. Very, this is, this is already mind blowing. This is already what we came to do.
1: (laughs) Does that, is, is that feeling of not having social constructs like that free? Is that what it feels like to be white?
2: Ah, That's what you think it, you think so. I think a lot of people make that association, but whiteness is still tethered to the, to, to this system of oppression, which is the white supremacist imagination. And that's not something we're trying to do. We're not trying to recreate that. You see where the white supremacist imagination got us? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It got us to right here. Mm -hmm. So we definitely don't Mm -hmm. want to recreate that. That type of oblivion and ignorance leads to this. So no, we don't want to be that. We won't be anything but it. And I think to your point, we have to call whiteness to the table as a part of it. Right? As as opposed to some sort of pinnacle idea. No, no, no you and this construct of your own imagination the black radical imagination is trying to get free from this but the current imagination of the black the white supremacist um uh imagination is the circumstance we're in now (laughs) y'all created this y'all lived in your imagination look what happened
0: and so i want to i want to take some steps back i i think it's so important to understand how people get to this moment so i want to talk about the pathway that got you here. First of all, you went to the school, one of two schools that I really wanted to go to. It was either going to be Spelman, but Howard, which was, who, which to you, you know, to go to so you bad know. The journalism program. Um, and Antoine told me on a staff call, he was like, I went to one of their homecomings, and it is the blackest thing you could ever experience. But And so that's probably my one regret in life. I'm still toying with the fact of, do I go virtually? But in any case, I am curious how a person growing up in Milwaukee, going to Milwaukee Lutheran, right? Because that's a part of your narrative. I've been seeing that, right? Um, Going to Howard, Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to what, what values or what things were present in younger Monique? Even in elementary school or whatever, that led you to this. What what are the things that happened? What were the the moments that happened where you was like, nah, this is this is my path?
2: Mm-hmm. I wish it was as cute of a linear story as a book or movie would make it seem. But I feel like if you were to ask me, you know, if you want me to focus on that part of my life. I have to blame, and I think blame is the right word, on having a black-ass mama. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what it is. I mean, some of us got black mamas, but some of us have black-ass mamas,
3: <laughs> right? Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, she would be like, Monique, why are you cussing? But <laughs> I think what's important there <laughs> is just to recognize the home that I was brought up in was affirming to a black identity at every turn. So this is one of my favorite stories, and my mom hates that I talk about this. But I I say I grew up in a house where white erasure was promoted (laughs) and evident. And when I say white erasure, (laughs) I'm saying that white people could be off the face of the planet at any moment, and it would not change a thing. (laughs) And I say how I learned that is somebody, you know, Barbies were popular, whatever, I'm a regular kid. Somebody bought me some Barbie skates, right? And it was a white Barbie on the skates. And my mother took the multicolored plaque of brown crayons and colored that girl in. (laughs) Okay. So as far as I was concerned, I had black Barbie skates, right? Because whatever whiteness is, it's not going to be plastered all over the things we play with or that we see. We weren't allowed to play with white things, not because they were (laughs) better or we weren't good enough for them, because we need to play with things that look like us right like this whiteness thing we're keeping it at bay <laughs> when it comes to our home right and so just knowing that that was true um and that we could always supplement anything that we were given with a black personality a black skin tone a black imagination meant that i would that's how it was taught i was taught that black people can go over reimagine recontextualize build on top of anything given to them Right. And Mm -hmm. so blame my mama for me having the audacity to say, oh, black people can do anything. Just
1: let us work. Leave us alone. We can do it all. uh, (laughs) Embarrassing black mama story. So my mom, a few years ago, like my mom is somewhat like your mom, because I feel like my mom has always been like she is inclined to go to black owned. Mm -hmm. She is inclined to just kind of support any sort of black endeavor that she can find, whether it was like. She wouldn't go to Scrub-A-Dub. She'd go to Leon's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at work a few years ago, she was just trying to learn more about her white co-workers. So she asked them if if she knew if they families owned slaves. It was, yeah, yeah. you know she didn't get no answer. You know she didn't get no answer. But it was funny because she was like, I just want to know. <laughs> 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 and I was like, dang, that is a black, that's a black ass mama.
0: It's interesting black because black I think my experience was a little different in that it was never pronounced in my household. So I'm in a single family home. Um, just my mom. I was mm-hmm. just always taught that black is beautiful, that you are beautiful, that, you know, I had an auntie who would tell my cousins, oh, that color doesn't look good on you or this color doesn't look good on you. And my mom was like, everything looks good on you. uh, As long as it's not too tight, like you look fine. Like as long as it's in your size. Um, (laughs) I didn't really know that black was bad or that people perceive it that way until I was an adult and was followed in the store. I mean, I, I was just raised in a house where we just didn't even talk about it. We didn't talk about like you are black, you are amazing. You are smart. You can do all things. That is a fact. Don't need to continue to infir- affirm it. I was always in black spaces in my NPS schools in my neighborhoods. It Again, it never really became a thing until I was 23. I was walking at Schaumburg, in a mall in Schaumburg, Illinois. I had just left church, had a big purse. That was the first time I noticed I was being followed and recognize that it was because I was black and that that was a shock now it's interesting that I say that because when I went natural my mother was the first one to be like no don't like don't go natural I used to do your natural hair it's not good and she actually told me a few about a couple months ago she was like I was really concerned that you were becoming radicalized when you went natural with your hair and I was like in the household we grew up in, you worried about me being radicalized when you told me don't show up with no white boy to the table? Like,
3: <laughs> like
0: <laughs> ma'am, you got nerves. No <laughs> you got boys. real life nerves. And so it's really interesting how blackness was approached in, in all of our families. And I'm really interested, Dr. Mo, um, in just how radical it was for your mom and your family to be unabashed in that. Right? Like, I mean, that's just powerful. That's really powerful. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, You know, I had a lot of similar experiences. I remember coming home one day and be like, Ma got crushed on this boy and he was white. And I'm telling her, which is already a thing, right? Like you can't even talk about that at home. I said it and her response immediate to me was, no, you don't. <laughs> kept going no you don't no you you do not like this white boy like not even a debate not even let's talk about like no you don't keep going and so (laughs) it it is radical and then there's stuff that there's still stuff to heal from too right like you know my hair was relaxed you know growing up and there was a lot of talk about I mean I I cut my hair off I went to Howard and cut my hair off so I was the favorite story of like she done went off to that black school and came back and da, 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 da. and <laughs> so there's still that and right and that's just like I feel like a part of the generational breakdown right like we're gonna keep going through some of these cycles and each time we're reborn <laughs> we're gonna you know chip at that a little bit um in a little in some more ways and I think my mom also attended Howard too so thinking about you know (laughs) like just to know that that ethos wasn't lost on the family right like we know that this is important we know that being black is a thing and I think what you're saying raises a really important question to talk about of like in what ways were you taught to engage blackness as a thing not and I think we often like are taught around like how to be black and how to behave because we're black, but not how do we engage blackness, right? How do we engage that as a overall idea based on what we were taught as, as a young person? And I just was lucky, fortunate enough to be in a house where we are always gonna engage it. Now to your point too, about something I didn't realize until I was older was colorism, right? I didn't really oh, yeah. get hit to it until I was in, um, school and somebody told me I was light-skinned and I was like <laughs> me because <laughs> in my Milwaukee race and I don't know if y'all have the same light skin really referred to mixed people like you're yeah, somebody yeah. is someone of your parents is white and I'm like I got I'm black on black you know two black parents <laughs> I get to be black but somebody called me light skin. I was like oh my gosh is that how I'm being interpreted but in the house that I grew up in uh, my stepfather is dark-skinned and my mom is the same complexion as me and the other thing my mom would reinforce is that we are looking for darker black people to be in community with right <laughs> because <laughs> look at us unfortunately look at how we came out we need to find darker black people like look at dark attractive black men and not in a fetishizing way as in like we are our quest is to get black not to the opposite, which is the socialized concepts, which is to be whiter, right? Which I think is also uh, a way of radicalizing it, which I mean, still could be problematic as we think about the notion of colorism overall, but that was also the house I was in. It was like black, dark, all of that is what we desire, is what we want, which is actually the narrative of all the things that we should hate, right? (laughs) We shouldn't want that. We shouldn't be looking for that. So I'm thankful it's worked out in my favor so far.
1: I know that's right. (laughs) No, that's right. So, so after you left Howard, how did you, how did you get back to Milwaukee?
2: Ooh, this is a story. This is a story because I left Milwaukee at 17, planning to never, ever return. (laughs) Like I came back to visit family. And even when I was in college, I came on December 23rd and left December 26th every year for Christmas break. And it wasn't because of my family. Like my family and I had good relationships. I was just like, I'm not, I'm over the Midwest, I'm over Milwaukee, I'm going to be in DC with black folks, blah, 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 blah. So when I graduated from Howard, I ended up going to the University of Delaware, um, which I didn't know it was a school in Delaware until my senior year of college. I'll just be real transparent about that. I go to the University of Delaware, um, you know, got my graduate degree there. And end up living in Philly and working for a while. And I worked for a charter school organization. um, Mm -hmm. And it was poorly managed. Poorly, poorly managed. (laughs) And not doing right by black children. And because my mama raised me to be who I am, and I just am fresh off of being at Howard, I called it out. Right? I said, this isn't fair. Y'all doing the wrong thing. And the next day I was fired. And so here I am, you know, fresh out of grad school, been living on my own for about seven years. And I'm trying, like, it's also the recession. So we're thinking about 2008, 2009, like everybody was having trouble finding jobs at that point. And I Mm. I called my mom and I was like, "Uh, this ain't working. So I'm coming home. Now, most people would be like, okay, this is a well thought out plan, blah, blah, blah. Had an apartment in Philly, shut it all down, packed up my Honda Civic. I called my mom Friday and was in Milwaukee on Monday. And when I was in Milwaukee, I was just like, this was a pit stop. I was only going to be here for three to six months. And while I was here, let's see, it was probably January 24th that I came. I went to UWM and was like, you know, I'm really interested in education. I'm going to get a second master's in education. Well, I had a meeting with an advisor. He was like, you already have a master's degree. Why are you getting another master's? I was like, I mean, because that's not an education. I want to do education. He's like, nah, just go into the PhD program. Here's the application for the PhD program. Here's the application for the fellowship. Well, that will take care of you for three years. So nine days later, I was a fully funded PhD student. So that was not my plan at all. But, you know, when the ancestors or the universe lay something out for you, you got to listen. And so... You know, that solidified me being in Milwaukee, at least while I completed the program. And since being a, being here and coming back, you know, getting involved with so many different organizations and uh, being really community engaged, it's just like redefined Milwaukee as home for me. Even though I'm from here, I don't think I would have claimed it had I not gone this second through this second iteration as an adult, which wasn't my decision. It was the university's decision to be like, girl, this is where you're supposed to be. And it's, you know, again, worked out in my favor.
1: So how did you get into evaluation? Like where did evaluation pop up in your life?
2: Yes. So um, I'm here in Milwaukee in graduate school and I'm, you know, doing my PhD and it was like, you know, what are you going to do your dissertation on? What are you going to do your study? And February of 20. 12, I believe, President Obama came out with the My Brothers Keeper initiative, which was his attempt Mm -hmm. in response to what happened to Trayvon Martin. He was like, I'm convening all of these leaders. Let me be very clear. In response to the murder of Trayvon Martin, he was like, let's convene convene all these leaders. Let me get this round of funds to help what he labeled at the time, black and brown boys. So I read it and I was like, this is good, but what about girls? Right. That's how I engaged Mm -hmm. the conversation. And folks weren't really hearing me on that. That's a whole nother conversation to talk about the issues there. But when I began to write my dissertation, I said the issue at hand isn't that you're doing this work, it's the criteria in which you're using to judge it whether or not it's successful, right? Because at the time, and you know, this happened locally too, anything that was black male associated looked a certain way, right? It meant suits, it meant bow ties. It meant haircuts. Mm-hmm. It meant church. Yeah. It meant it was a very narrow. It wasn't Antoine,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> right? No, it's not me. It wasn't nope, Antoine, not me,
2: <laughs> right? It wasn't my brothers. <laughs> it wasn't my dad. It was a very narrow view of like black mm-hmm. male heterosexual capitalist <laughs> it was like the narrative, yep. and I was like, well, if that's our criteria for success, we're really doing more harm to black folks than we are helping them. And so that is when the evaluation thing came up, right? Of like, what you're really, somebody told me, was like, what you're really talking about is evaluation. You should look into evaluation as a part of your study, as your work. Um, actually, it was Reggie Moore. Actually, who um, nice. got me hit to a program called the Graduate Education Diversity Initiative, which is a part of the American Evaluation Association. So basically, they fund you one, for a whole year to work in a local organization and do evaluation work. And that was like nice. the pivotal po- moment for me because it translated what I felt, which was this ain't mm-hmm. right and your markers for success ain't right into mm-hmm. the actual career pivot of like this is evaluations, the whole sector. Um, And I, you know, started working more deeply into it and recognizing how powerful it is for black people to be holding the tools and the work to judge whether or not something's successful, because we're often not the evaluators of success. A lot of people say that they're successful because... You know, we had 10 young people come through our program and I'm like, so what if 10 young people came through that program? If they came through that program and were humiliated every single day, that program wasn't successful. We got to check on what our criteria of success are. You need black women to do that. (laughs) Okay. So
1: trust them, trust (laughs) them, trust them black women. Trust them.
2: That was it. That was it. So it was happenstance. It wasn't my goal, but I was really fortunate to make those connections and be like, this is what I've been feeling. And here's a field that really allows me to do that at
0: work. And then you started your own company.
2: Boom, boom.
0: Here we go. So so as we I wanna I wanna come back a little because there are some conversations that you have on Facebook that yes.
1: be really let watch. So Must so watch.
0: so so one of the questions that I have, and this is me selfishly on my podcast asking the question I want to know this idea of wealth right so a couple um maybe a week or so ago you posted a diddy meme Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and he was like the hustle is I hired y'all so I don't have to work Mm -hmm. I am curious about not only your thoughts about wealth but this idea of look if if we're getting rich off of other black people, it that's not what we want. Right. And so I want you to dig a little deeper into this idea about into capitalism and this idea about wealth and not building it off the backs of, of other black and brown folks. But honestly, how that shows up for you as an entrepreneur, again, with the with the um Good the, the burnings of businesses and things like that in Bronzeville, you was like, look, all this can go. Yes. Even my business, like it can go. And so I, I want you to just like deep dive into this idea of wealth as another construct.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the simplest, before I get to the me, but on the simplest thing about wealth, wealth is the outcome of an investment of an oppressive system and that's capitalism. And if we're talking about imagining beyond our oppression, that means I'm not gonna spend time investing myself deeper into the system that's oppressing us, right? Message that's what I feel about wealth building overall, especially financial wealth building. Right? I think there's a lot of other ways to think about wealthy approaches to doing stuff that are valid, that aren't rooted into doing capitalism at the best level. Um, and I shared that meme about Diddy, and I mean you know, my captioning, I just had to clarify too, right? It was like, some days I have Diddy energy and then it goes away because my politics (laughs) go against it, right? But the Diddy energy was like, that's the hustle I pay y'all. He's really referring to like the fact like, y'all should figure this out for yourselves. I gave you the tools to do the work so I can go spend time dreaming and doing other shit, (laughs) right? And I think as it comes to, you know, being an entrepreneur with a radical politic, right? Which is what I believe, myself to be that means i'm constantly teetering a line of what does it mean for me to to survive in the world as it is mm-hmm. and to build for the mm-hmm. world that doesn't yet exist right and so my work at ubuntu i don't put any of uh i don't dream up anything outside of this i know ubuntu is here so that we can exist in this moment i'm not trying to build, you know, build, become a conglomerate and like engage all these other folks. I'm really trying to think critically about how do we survive in this moment? Because if Black women don't have the opportunity to create their own structures of taking care of their households, we are then subject to some of the greatest violence, right? That means if we don't have a job, we're subject to a lot of domestic intimate partner violence. If we do go work for someone else, there's a lot of humiliation that occurs for Black women's ideas and ideology. And I'm not saying it's not unsurmountable it just says like what can I do to survive this moment that puts my well-being at the center and that's you know creating this space and so I don't you know entrepreneur is not a word that I like I don't know people keep saying it and I get by the strictest definition that's what I am but it's like I don't identify with it (laughs) there's nothing that I've labeled myself as I I consider myself as a founder an institution builder But I don't think about entrepreneur in the same in the same regard, um, and so when it comes to the, the the key question there of like, capitalistic wealth being building means that you create businesses and exploit people. Well, in this work, even though we are situated as a, a money making company, like I don't make the most money at Ubuntu. <laughs> I you know my business structure is radical to that extent because I'm trying to build the team's well-being as best as I can so I'm thinking about how do I hire new people dah, 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 dah. and how do I put myself in a position that I'm comfortable in while I continue to build this radical space so I look at it as a vehicle and not a destination it's not where I'm trying to go or land it's the opportunity that I can cultivate and create while we're doing this work of trying nice. to figure out the revolution
1: So you had mentioned, you talked about women feeling, not feeling humiliated in the workplace. And just even thinking about workplaces in general and even going back to what we talked about earlier with um, empathy and compassion being things that that are weak muscles How can we, well, this may not even be a us problem, but what are your thoughts on the muscle in the workplace in relationship to how to treat black women, women of color, people of color um, with dignity? What What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it comes from, you know, the first part of that previous question was you gotta be able to identify the problems first. Right. Kimberly Crenshaw says, like, if you can't see a problem, you can't name a problem. If you can't name a problem, you can't solve a problem, which is often the issue when it comes to race and gender politics in the workplace. No one sees it as an issue. They see black people as the issue. (laughs) And so then they start naming black people being themselves as the issue that needs to be managed, handled or dealt with. And so I think about in organizations building the capacity to say, how is the business structure inherently anti-black? how is the business structure inherently sexist, right? So much about, we've learned this through the pandemic, right? Like we really learned a lot about this through the pandemic about one, I think the whole notion of professionalism in a lot of ways has gotten thrown out the door because (laughs) professional meaning what? (laughs) <laughs> this wh- yeah. why was I wearing a suit to work every day for what I'm doing the exact same thing and I'm wearing my drawers and put a scarf around my neck <laughs> and I'm getting I'm even doing better I'm doing better now because now I'm just chilling versus putting a, on a costume that I don't that don't fit me right mm-hmm. and so I think the disruption of some of the things that are inherently built in some of these systems has to be called to the table first so that these organizations can create dignified workplaces and I think people aren't always ready for that they're so caught up in to the markers of socialized success that they're unwilling to dig in deep and to understand that these markers don't make a difference. I'll give you an example here at Ubuntu. Um, I don't see anybody's resume until after they're hired. <laughs> you can't come and get a job at Ubuntu with a resume. For the main thing being is like, I don't care how much schooling you have. I don't care where you went to school or if you or if you went to school at all. I want you to talk about how you will thrive over here, (laughs) how you will increase the capacity of the team, and what you feel like you could gain from working with us. And that's what you need to sell me on. And then I'll be like, sure, come over here and work. (laughs) But we're so, we're so, you know, focused on, well, they got this and this degree. And then you realize you're not building a team, you're building a menu. (laughs) you're building a menu of people who have all of these things on the table and people can pick and choose whether or not. And it's like, that's not what I want. I want a squad gang gang and building building the squad as anybody knows on a good team. That means you have complementary assets and not everyone Mm -hmm. is the same right think about the greatest teams the the greatest teams you know I'm always a child of the 90s so we're always going to talk about the Bulls Bulls. (laughs) and we always got to talk about what it meant to create the Bulls it wasn't just Jordan it was a squad with complementary assets that allowed them to thrive right and Mm -hmm. so like being able to be conscious of what it means to have complementary assets means that I might have learned these skills but not in the classroom Mm-hmm. Or, I might have this critical analysis, but I ain't get it from a book. And now, because we're in a complimentary space where it's like you trying to see black people get free, and I'm trying to see get black people get free, here, let me show you this book and you tell me about your experience. And now we're talking about complimentary assets that allow us to do some gang work. And so, when we think about disrupting the notions in the workplace, yeah, look at what inherently has been not to my advantage in the workplace, and how do I either dismantle it, destroy it, or flip it on its head. Right. And, you know, I'll say this other thing Mm -hmm. children in the workplace has been frowned upon for so long. Well, now we ain't got no choice. (laughs) You ain't got No got no choice. And then you're realizing, well, why didn't in the first place I just take more breaks? In general, it's just we're all better off if we take more breaks. And we take more breaks, you get a chance to go help um, Kwame with his homework. You get a chance to make sure you breastfeed so and so, and you get a chance to use the bathroom. And then we can come back and everybody's hydrated and ready to continue working instead of this high pressure, high stakes, moving at the speed of white supremacy. Disrupt all of that. You
0: know, I think in the eight hour work days, right? oh, like, I feel like all of that, <laughs> like, we need to re examine. All of that. Why why am I on the clock for eight hours a day when I was in an office setting, just in general, across jobs? It was like, I don't want to get up. And I worked in some places like call centers where you know it's frowned upon if you went to the bathroom. So you didn't drink water, right? So you you sitting eight, nine hours, mm-hmm. not hydrated um at all, you know, yeah. waiting on your break, right? As you as you take down your, your alkaline water, right? I, you know. I, this is the third podcast I've mentioned it on, but Brianna Taylor's um, the lack of indictment for murders was such a profound heartbreak for me. Mm-hmm. And when I got the, I was a, I'm was a part of this uh, chain of folks, on, we have a group chat on Facebook and somebody put in, what is wonton endangerment? And I was like, well, I know what wonton rappers are, but I don't, what, what are we talking about? And that's mm-hmm. how I found out about what didn't happen and as i came out of that so all of all of that week so last week into this week i've been thinking about the survival of black women and how to me and this may be me internalizing it that for me it feels like there are a lot of systems in place to just prevent us from surviving and feeling the weight of that was hard for me because i am a black woman and i do want to continue to be successful and i do want to continue flourishing in my company and in my capacity at work and and whatever and again thinking about for me in that moment what it felt like it was saying about how folks valued not only a black woman but a black woman in blue Right? Like, she was supposed to be the example. And the thing that, the thing that turned around for me is I was like, but also Black people, Black women are resilient. Like, to be in these cultures that are not meant for us to survive. And for us to not only survive, but us to live and for us to thrive, I've really had to tap into that and like kind of honor like, nope, this system ain't meant for you to do it, but you're gonna do it anyways, because that's who you are. That That's who your people are. Um, I still find myself trying to wrap my head around finding my space as a black woman, post Breonna Taylor. And I just wonder how has any, in the work that you do, right? Which I mean, you're in it. How do things like that land for you? How do you find the space to keep going? Yeah, that's
2: a really good question and layered. I think um, the two things that I can acknowledge are one, that what I've learned or come to understand that black people are in a constant state of mourning, right? Mm -hmm. And we have been since you know, slavery, slavery and captivity and chattel slavery has occurred. And I'm, I'm, it's funny that you asked that. I just got a tattoo like two days ago that really relates to what you're talking about. And because black people are in a constant state of mourning, you know, we are as Christina Sharp who wrote this book in the wake on blackness and being always in the wake. And she says it uh, as a metaphor of like, we know the wake as in the funeral, but also the wake as in what the ship leaves behind, right? So we're thinking about slavery, the ships, what the ships leave behind, like we're there and often just like in the water, (laughs) it's coming after us and we're just like trying to stay afloat, trying to stay afloat, but there's dead bodies all around us (laughs) and we're just trying to like stay afloat, keep breathing in the middle of all of that. And because that is true, I think that means some of the things that are a part of this current moment hit me different, right? it's not that i'm desensitized that's not it it's just that this has become constitutive or defining of what it means to to exist <laughs> that what it means for me to exist is to constantly be mourning black life and if i lose my connection to that that means i'm losing my connection to what inherently has defined blackness at in this current iteration again we're trying to liberate ourselves from this and not that black isn't beautiful and not that I don't love being black or black power isn't amazing, but it's just rooted in the fact that we know that being black is also a constant state of mourning of black life because black life is not protected, respected or um, defended in this world. So I think because of that being true, I think resilience to it requires us to either understand or accept that if I am going to continue to bob the wake (laughs) or to attend the wake, that I have to also do what it means to survive so I don't end up in. And so I think that resiliency factor isn't just a beautiful characteristic. It's a trauma response. And I bought the book. It's all that's around.
0: I bought the book. So I saw you posted about starting a book club. I bought the book. I hope it's here in time so that I can be part of the book club.
2: Yes, Man. yes, join us in that conversation because I think it's just important for us to recontextualize our work. And the tattoo I got um was because I read this book and I just felt so connected to what she talks about in there. She defines it as wake work, right? The work that we do because we are living in the wake. And I've done a lot of study on, you know, black history and concepts and um I spent some time in Egypt when I was in undergrad. And one of the things that I studied was ancient comedic language. Most people refer to it as hieroglyphs. And so one of the things that I remembered is, and I'm showing y'all this because y'all can see, but there's this idea of the word voice. And voice is a word that's used all the time in ancient comedic glyphs you'll see it all the time referring to when somebody dies you want to say the voice is true you want to say someone's a good person they're a person with a true voice like voice is just a real good characteristic associated to ancient Kemet but the mm. symbol for the symbol for voice is a oops sorry is an oar like the oar of a boat and so listening to um Christina Sharpe's book and black people living in the wake I was just reminded that like the thing is i'm in the wake but i have an or and the or is my voice and so connecting back to the original question Kanita, it's really reminding me that my work in this moment as black people are in the wake isn't to be resilient for resilience sake it's being resilient because what's keeping me and other people alive is my voice and so i need to continue to use it i need to continue to utilize it and I need to continue to protect it. So I'm embodying and learning and investing in and feeling through what I feel is the responsibility that's been ancestrally given to me, which is to be the or, to be the voice in the middle of the wake.
1: So I know you can't, so man, that was really deep. That was really deep. I I would like to come with something deeper, but it's gonna take me too long. (laughs) It's going to take me too long. I'm going to need like 20 minutes. Um, but man, so if we're talking about protecting your voice, how do you do that? Like personally, how do you protect your voice? Because I can imagine you you put a lot of effort into your work and you put a lot of passion into it. Mm-hmm. And and protecting that voice will lead to you not burning out. So what do you do to avoid burning out?
2: Mm, yeah. So I think always it's being able, being reminded what my voice is and what it can do. Because if I let the world tell me what my voice is, then I could easily get eaten up by the world's definition of it. As opposed to me mm. owning and saying like, this is what my voice is and this is what I want it to do at this time. Cause it's fluid. I can, I'm a human. I can make it change um and also like feeling through um I think it's often referred to as somatic practice feeling through really how it makes me feel when I get a chance to use my voice how does it make you feel <laughs> right because you know a lot of us have a lot of skills that we are of things that we're like really good at and really awesome but we feel like shit when we do this excuse me for cussing but like we feel <laughs> we feel terrible for doing it and so it doesn't matter that I have this amazing skill set because I don't feel good using it. And so being really conscious of how I appreciate my voice being used and how I utilize it. Oddly enough, I really don't listen to myself very often and I really don't read (laughs) stuff that I write very often once I've put it out there. Right. And, I think that the affirmations of being able to share my voice with people who I know who can hold my voice feels good as well. So like having the honor to be on this podcast, being in conversation with other Black women as they create their own their own podcasts or other journeys. Um, the way the reason I do Facebook Live versus like a curated, marketed, branded concept is really because it's at least limited to some people who I know understand me as a human being right and so yeah. it's not for everybody there's something it's shareable right but then it's coming through the the hands of Facebook of people who are actually mm-hmm. valuing me as a human first and then also enjoy what I like to say and I think what also comes along with it just to the tangible care as, aspects of one is practicing right like practice talking your shit <laughs> you gotta <laughs> practice Like, if you don't (laughs) practice talking your shit, you're not going to be very good at it. And so working on, and I say voice, you know, I'm also including writing and all of the other things that I do internally around managing my voice. And then also being very clear of like, am I talking to practice? Am I talking because I've been asked to? Or I'm just talking because I like talking. Because if it's the third thing, then I need to shut the hell up and so being really clear about the space Mm -hmm. when I need to listen just knowing when those things are existing make sure I'm intentional about making sure I stay and remain in places where I just need to listen
0: that really entails like a a a deep self-awareness too, to know when to shut up right and I think that
3: Mm -hmm.
0: for me at least um I stopped putting out a lot of like business content for my personal page, especially once COVID hit, because it just didn't feel right for me. It didn't feel right to pretend as if things were okay, because frankly, for the first two, three months of COVID, I was not sure I was okay. I, you know, there was a portion of that where I was just like terrified to be around people. I have, Immune disorders I mean I was reckless at pick and save like you know to go pick up my groceries I was like um put the receipt in the bag please don't come to my window tap on the trunk like that is where I've gotten like I didn't recognize myself and I'm a people person so to ask people to put the receipt in the bag tap my trunk when you closed it and get out the way so I can leave like that's just reckless right like <laughs> That's just it's yeah, so like I problem. I didn't even know how to connect to my work. Like I just didn't know how to connect to my work and I didn't feel like I had a space to say that I didn't even know how to say that to people. I didn't know how to say that that I was struggling and though I was aware that I was. And so I really appreciate you saying that, you know, for all of the influence that you have, you make sure that you recognize what you're doing with it and why because to me at least from outside looking in I feel like a lot of people who are also in my space COVID made some of us really nervous about losing some of that influence losing some of that voice Mm -hmm. and feeling like well I gotta say something so that people won't forget about me um so yeah so I a lot of what you're saying is really resonating with me because I think it's so important just as
3: Mm-hmm. hmm 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 Mm-hmm. hmm mm-hmm.
1: Do you do you though, but do you though cause cause being black, there like there is no break on being black, like you can't you can't put on a white suit and spend two weeks on vacation as a white person and like run away from yo and it's not even a problem run away from the system the system's everywhere and it's and it's working perfect to to perfection right now um want -hmm. it's rough but it also makes me think, uh, as you were talking, that you got to lean into that and also start to work on that muscle, that imagination muscle of like, liber- that liberation imagination muscle <laughs> and figure out, based on how you feel and tapping into that, tap, tap, tapping in, how do you, how do you feel like, how do you expand what you see into like, so that you can see it, so that you can say it, so that you can change it. I'm trying to use these Dr. Mo vibes. I'm trying to use them. I'm learning, I learning. <laughs> we did we did talk about this at Riverside
3: Mm-hmm, hmm Yeah. <laughs> 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 Always, Ooh. oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. So, mm. Dr. Mo, in your in your experience, what are, who are some of your favorite Milwaukee-based artists? And that isn't anything.
2: Uh, period. Um, so, I'm in love with Rosie Petrie. She knows I'm in love with her. Um, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> is awesome. Awesome, is awesome. And just awesome. Like, I don't know what else to say. Like, Her ability to translate Black thought, futurity, history, and depth into tangible artistic pieces is unparalleled in my opinion. And we are lucky to have her Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a part of our hometown squad, right? And she's Milwaukee for real. Not just I just live here, but like I'm about that life. Mm So, I'm in love with all things Rosie Touches. Um, I think just absolutely brilliant, absolutely amazing. Um, I am so grateful to have shared uh, community with um, Makia Stampley. I'm just so grateful, Mm -hmm. you know, as an amazing actress and one who is attuned and curious and in defense of Black humanity. Right, attuned to curious about and in defense of at the same time, and with that, I'm also Chike. Like you can't deny kind of artistry they bring to the stage through their work. Um, Just in love, enamored (laughs) by all of that work. Um, I think I have to also shout out uh, my my poet my poet laureate. (laughs) Right, we have our poet laureate Mm -hmm. uh, Dasha. Who can is just the definition of word queen and word smith. And then I also have to turn to mm-hmm. how powerful it is to have Mikey out here doing her thing with her poetry. Um, that book uh, was on my syllabus when I taught at Marquette. Um, Black Girl Silence and Other Things Made of Gold wow. because why wouldn't it be, <laughs> right? <laughs> why yes. wouldn't it be? Um, so I, I really... I really uphold those things. And then I also think that there is a special kind of artistry um, reserved for those that it's an art of leadership, right? And I think it is often Mm -hmm. overlooked and misunderstood about how people utilize that art. Um, So I think about uh, the leadership of Ashley Lee at Public Allies Milwaukee and what she's cultivated over there Mm -hmm. as an artful work. I think about the leadership of Siobhan Sisson through Love on Black Women as an artful kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the leadership of Anomalous um, through her food and catering is an artful.
1: Mm-hmm. It's art. delicious. That is oh art that we cannot oh
2: bypass. So and um, also think about uh, Melissa Blue, Muhammad, and her artistry with, with crystals. Yes. So I think there's a whole lot of stuff there. I mean, there's so many more people that I can name. I think the same thing about, you know, creating our art into flourishing businesses like at the Bronzeville Collective, too. And so I think about art just mm-hmm. I think about art in terms of creative leadership. <laughs> and so that might be in my particular sector or field or it might be just like in the work that I do. It's artful. And I think artful as paramount to me skillful. when you can be artful about your approach to something I hope that answers the question
1: no you did for sure Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm glad you brought up Blue. She's awesome. I I've known her since I was maybe like mm-hmm. 17. So, she's she's seen me grow up and she's she's mm-hmm. always been dope. Always mm-hmm. been dope and just always been just like a beautiful light. So, shout out to Blue. Blue. You're awesome. <laughs> Sweet. I I think, is there anything else you want to share? Is there anything? How can people if they want to give you money for you to do that to do work? How can somebody find you? the best
2: way to contact us is by going to our website? ubunturesearch.com U-B-U-N-T-U Research.com. we are also popular on the facebook streets instagram streets and twitter streets um feel free to hit us up in any of those um dimensions and then to look at me personally and mind you personal is not my business thing because i talk i talk my shit on my personal page um you can find me <laughs> you As can you find sure. me on uh, instagram and twitter at a black woman PhD.
1: Mm-hmm. And she's <laughs> charging full 100. price. No, no plugs. No plugs. Oh,
3: yes. Yes. Shit. It's actually
2: on our front door. So don't even come over here thinking that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Uh-huh.
1: Yes,
3: yep.
1: yeah, thank you so much,
3: mhm, mhm. I should. <laughs> and
1: and just reflecting on this series, it's been really powerful to hear such dynamic women share their perspectives. And uh if if people can't trust black women after all of these wonderful minds sharing their thoughts, it's your fault, not theirs.
2: <laughs> Antoine Antoine, I need you to put that on the voicemail the answering machine put it on a repeat on a commercial it is not
1: for real that's it I,
2: I'm, learning. <laughs>
1: I'm learning I'm learning I'm growing drinking more water look
2: what happens look what happened <laughs> you drink water in my your business life yes. changes okay
1: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Thanks for listening to Black Imagination with Antoine and Kanita. Black Imagination is a part of the Imagine MKE podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars, share a positive review. It really helps people find us. Also, be sure to email us at pod at Imagine MKE. Don't forget to like us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook under imagine underscore mke anything else you'd like to mention kenita
0: you can also find us on facebook at imagine mke so uh
1: yeah we look forward to seeing you on the next show all right thank you guys so much have a great day